This morning, Mike's going to be preaching to us from Genesis 25 all the way through Genesis chapter 27. So it's a large passage. We won't have time to read all of that, but I'd like to start out by uh, reading for him uh, from Genesis 25, uh, starting in verse 19 and heading down to the end of the chapter, verse 34. So Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 19 and going down to verse 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Well, it was yard sale season, and so a family in Hartford, Connecticut, decided to get rid of their junk. You know, I'm not sure what their expectations were, but at the end of the day, they shipped a number of items and they made a respectable $300. One of those items was a small porcelain bowl, which they sold for $35. I don't know about you, but a bowl that you're not using selling for $35 sounds like a good deal to me. But what they didn't know was that this wasn't any old bowl. This was a rare 15th century Chinese artifact. It was one of only seven such bowls known to exist in the whole world, and it was worth $500,000. And by the time they found out, it was too late. Stories like this abound. People who fail to recognize the value of something in their possession, and so they sell it on the cheap only to later realize that they've made a huge 
mistake. And probably the oldest and most famous of these tragic stories is found in our passage this morning. Here we learn of something infinitely precious sold for a single meal. So let me encourage you to keep Genesis 25 open. We're also going to cover chapters 26 and 27 this morning. So loads to get through, too much to get through really. But today we're going to start a new section in Genesis which covers the life of Jacob and well, it's, it's, it's kind of like a soap opera if you've, uh, if you've read these passages before. If, I mean, if Jacob was alive today, he would, have, he would make millions from reality TV. You know, if you, if you thought your family was crazy, then get ready to meet Jacob. And uh, be, because we've got so much to get through, it, it's really going to help you if you keep your Bible open. So if you haven't already done that, grab a Bible and keep it open before you. Last week, we witnessed the providential marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. It was literally a match made in heaven. But in verse 21 of chapter 25, we see that there is a problem. Like Sarah before her, Rebekah is barren. And once again, not for the first time in Genesis, God's promise seems in jeopardy. However, in faith there, in verse 21, Isaac prays for his wife, and we read that the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Crisis averted. Now, on first reading, we might think that Isaac's prayer was answered instantly. But look at verse 20. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. Now cast your eyes down to the end of verse 26 there. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth. In other words, this is 20 years of barrenness, 20 years of praying. Now, what are we meant to take from this? Well, I think this teaches us that this new generation also has to learn the lessons of faith. So just like Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca need to know that God's promise is utterly dependent on God himself. They don't have the power to bring blessing to the world. This is not a joint rescue mission. God alone is going to bring about salvation through this family. And so this incident is a reminder to this family that they are marked by promise. This family receives life, both physically and spiritually, as a gracious gift. Yet God's promise doesn't mean a life of ease. It often results in conflict. And this conflict begins in the womb. So look at verse 22. We read there that Rebecca conceives twins and the children struggled within her. The, the Hebrew there literally says the children smashed themselves inside her. She, I mean, she's in agony. And so she asks God, why is this happening to me? And the Lord answers her with a prophecy. And this prophecy is really the key verse for the entire Jacob narrative. So in verse 23 there, God says that two nations are in Rebekah's womb and these nations will be divided. One of them is gonna be stronger than the other and the older one shall serve the younger. Now that last phrase there in verse 23 would have been shocking revolutionary. You see, in those days, society gave certain privileges to firstborn sons. The firstborn would receive something called a birthright. 
And this entitled them to many things. For example, it would have entitled them to a double portion of the, inher of the inheritance. It also, when the father died, the firstborn son would have had authority over the family. He'd become the head and the leader. And as we already know from Genesis, this is no ordinary family. And so this is no ordinary birthright. The leader of this family would be entrusted with God's promises. They'd receive the covenantal blessings. They'd become the ones through whom God would bring a savior. Now, we'd expect this privilege to be given to the elder son. After all, that's how the ancient world worked. Yet, shockingly, God breaks from social convention. He, he reverses the cultural practices of the day, and he declares that the younger son will be favored. The younger son will be given firstborn status. And this is before they've done anything, good or bad. Their destinies are already decided. God has sovereignly chosen the younger older over the older. Over, sorry, the younger son over the older son. Now we'll think more about that in a moment. In verse 24, Rebecca is ready to give birth. And in the next few verses, we'll see that these two twins, although they come from the same womb, they, they couldn't be more different. So in verse 25, we read that the first child came out red and all his body was like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Elmo, I mean Esau. And uh, then literally grabbing at his heel is the younger son who they call Jacob. Uh, the name Jacob, uh, can, it can mean a few different things. It can mean heel grabber or deceiver. And as, we've, as, as we're going to see, his name fits his character. So from his very birth, he's pictured as someone who's desperately trying to overtake his brother. And this really sets the pattern for the rest of the story. So in verse 27 to 28, we see some more differences. So Esau became a skillful hunter a man of the field, you know, he, he shops at Cabela's, his pickup truck causes global warming, he runs wild at heart retreats, you know, he's, he's that guy in the story. But Jacob, he was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Uh, the word for quiet there, it, it, it's a difficult word to translate, it's, it's maybe better translated civilized, you know, he's, he's part of the Finer Things Club, he drinks artisan coffee, he likes to discuss poetry from his comfy chair, you know, he's, he, I mean, he's, th these brothers, they, they're polar opposites. And in verse 28, there's even parental favoritism, did you see that? Isaac loved Esau because of he, he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, this little detail will become very important when we get to chapter 27. And all this sets us up for verses 29 to 34. God has already chosen Jacob over Esau. We saw that in verse 23. The question is, how is God's plan gonna play out in human history? How's Esau, the firstborn, gonna lose his firstborn status? Well, we're about to find out. In verse 29, we learn that Jacob was cooking stew. And all of a sudden, Esau burst through the door. He's dirty, sweaty, smelly. He's utterly exhausted from working hard. And then he smells Jacob's stew. 
let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted, he says. The, the Hebrew there, it's, it's actually very coarse. He, he literally says, give me that red stuff. I mean, he doesn't even know what it is. And it's in this moment that Jacob spots an opportunity. In verse 31, he says, sell me your birth right now. Which honestly is a crazy offer when you think about it. Who on earth would sell their birthright for a single meal? Who is that short-sighted? What fool is so concerned with immediate gratification that they would throw away their inheritance? Look at verse 32. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is an inheritance to me? Now remember, in Abraham's family, the one who possesses the birthright inherits the Abrahamic covenant. But Esau, he's living for the moment. He, he lacks faith. God's promises are just too abstract. He's, he's so nearsighted. The future blessings of his birthright appear meaningless. In verse 33, Esau swears to sell his birthright to Jacob. Now, in that culture, an oath was legally binding. And so there in verse 34, the exchange is completed. Jacob gives Esau bread and lentil stew. And just notice how, how the pace of the narrative picks up. And Esau ate and drank and rose and went his way. Four quick verbs. He's given up his birthright for fast food. And the narrator actually comments on Esau's actions. He tells us right at the end of verse 34 there, thus Esau despised his birthright. To despise something means to, to treat it as worthless, to, to hold it in contempt. Esau effectively throws his birthright in the trash. That's how much God's promises mean to him. And so there's this, this passage gives us a really interesting juxtaposition, doesn't it? So on the one hand, we have God's sovereignty. Before they were even born, God has chosen Jacob over Esau. Yet on the other hand, we have human responsibility, don't we? Jacob and Esau are willing agents. They're not robots. They make important decisions and real choices. I mean, God doesn't make Esau sell his birthright. In fact, it's through the human actions that God's sovereign plan comes about. You know, Jacob and Esau, they, they bargain as though they're the only ones involved. However, what they don't know, and what we, we know because of verse 23, is that their actions actually implement the purposes of God. And so there's no conflict in this passage between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I mean, there's a tension, yes. We don't understand how it all works, but there's no contradiction. And that goes for what we see in the whole Bible. Humans make real choices that have real significance. Yet over every human action, good and bad, is a God who sovereignly works all things according to the counsel of his will. But this passage raises a question, doesn't it? 
why does God choose Jacob in the first place? Why does he elect him over Esau? Well, the Apostle Paul actually tells us in Romans chapter 9, listen to what he says. Paul says, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, and then he quotes the Old Testament book of Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Paul says it was to show that God's grace does not depend on human effort. Did you get that? Before they'd done anything, good or bad, God had already decided to have mercy on Jacob. Before he was even born, God chose to set his love on Jacob. That's how far back God's love goes in Jacob's life. And guess what? You know, if you're a Christian, the same is true of you. The Bible teaches us that God elects people for salvation. For example, we could look at lots of different passages, but look at Acts 13, verse 48, where we read, And when the Gentiles heard this, i.e. the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Or in his letter to the Galatians, the apostle Paul talks about when he was set apart before he was born. When God, and then God called him by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me. We see the same thing with Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5 and with John the Baptist in Luke 1.15. Or remember what we read earlier in Ephesians 1? God chose us before the foundation of the world. He elected us in eternity past. And so Jacob is not some special case. This is how God's sovereign grace works. Before we'd done anything, good or bad, God had already set his love on his people. This is known as the doctrine of election. And this doctrine totally goes against human convention. It's just not how the world works. I mean, we expect people to earn what they get. We expect people to work hard and put the effort in. We, we want those in life who prosper to deserve it. And so we expect God to work this way too. But God's electing love is countercultural. His sovereign grace triumphs over human convention. From eternity past, God gets to choose who he'll have mercy on. Now, look, I know this raises questions for many of us, me included. 
questions that we just don't have time to look at this, to answer this morning. So if you do have questions, I'd encourage you to read Romans chapter 9 and come and speak to me after the service. But let me briefly mention three applications for us. So three applications from the doctrine of election. First of all, God's electing love is personal. God's electing love is personal. So these are the first two pictures I have of my kids. Got Ariella here and Isaiah here. Now, I can't help but look at these pictures and nearly tear up because these are my beautiful kids before they were even born. And as I look at these pictures, I'm reminded of something. I'm reminded that before my kids were even born, I'd already set my love on them. Before they were even born, I'd committed myself to them individually, promising to be their loving father, promising to provide everything that they need, promising to sacrifice whatever it takes for their well-being. And in a similar way, that's what God's electing love is like. He doesn't just choose some vague, undefined group of people. He sets his love on individuals. So if you're a Christian, that includes you. I mean, let that sink in a moment. You were in God's thoughts from eternity past. Before you'd even taken your first breath, you, God had been thinking about you. Yes, you, Christian. He's been waiting for you since before time began. God's electing love is incredibly intimate and personal. And, and Christian, that should bring a, a childlike smile to your face to know that your heavenly Father's love for you is older than time itself. Secondly, God's electing love is humbling. You know, if you are a Christian this morning, let me ask you, why did God set his love on you? Was it because you were born into a Christian family? Was it because you went to church? Was it because you read your Bible? Was it because you tried your best to be a good person? Was it because you had more intelligence, more humility, more spiritual insight than others? Was it because there was something in you that God found lovable? Absolutely not. God set his love on you because he is merciful and he is compassionate. He elected or chose you before the foundation of the world, before you'd done anything good or bad. And do you know what? That puts a nail in the coffin of our pride, doesn't it? It leaves zero room for self-righteousness. It obliviates any posture that would look down on someone else. Listen to Paul again. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing 
things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I mean, Christians should be the most humble people on the planet. Thirdly, God's electing love is reassuring. Christian, do you ever wonder if Jesus will grow tired of you? Do you ever think, I'm too great a sinner? I'm too hard-hearted. I keep falling into the same old sins. My faith is so weak. My obedience is so embarrassing. I'm the worst Christian I know. Surely God's fed up with me. Surely Jesus is going to cast me away. Brothers and sisters, if God chose you before the foundation of the world, before you've done anything good or bad, he ain't going to change his mind now. He won't renounce his election. As Paul says in Romans eleven twenty nine, right at the end of his arguments, the calling of God is irrevocable. You, weak and stumbling Christian, can rest assured in God's electing love. I mean, don't, don't take my words for it. L- listen to Jesus. He says in John six thirty seven, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Isn't that great? All, not some, not most, but all the Father gives to the Son will come to him. If God has set his electing love on you, then you will come to Jesus. You will believe in Jesus. You will have eternal life and Jesus will never cast you out. He won't lose you. And if you're wondering, well, how do I know if God has elected me? Well, you'll know if you come to Jesus. This is the human responsibility part. Those God chooses will believe that Jesus died and rose again to save them from their sins. So if you've never done that, then come to Jesus today. Believe in him and experience the comfort of God's electing love. Well, back to Genesis. The the Jacob and Esau soap opera now takes a commercial break, shall we call it? Because chapter 26 is about Isaac. In fact, chapter 26 happens before Jacob and Esau are born. So we might ask, why is it here? I mean, why interrupt the story? Well, Esau has just sold his birthright to Jacob. Now, this birthright is not just any old birthright. This birthright comes with a divine blessing, the same divine blessing that God gave to Abraham. And chapter 26 is here to show us that Isaac has inherited this divine blessing from Abraham. That's the big idea of chapter 26. Now, we we actually just don't have time to look at it in any detail this morning. Uh, But chapter 26 is a story about Isaac. However, it has striking similarities with the life of Abraham. For example, there's a famine there in verse 1. This famine causes Isaac and Rebekah to sojourn in another country. And in that place, Isaac lies and says that Rebekah is his sister, this ringing any bells. In God's providence, the king finds out before anything bad happens. And then like Abraham, Isaac is then rebuked by a pagan king. 
Then Isaac builds wells, and despite some conflict, he becomes very wealthy. He also builds altars and calls on the name of the Lord. In other words, chapter 26 is basically Abraham's greatest hits played by a cover band. You know, it's, there are slight differences, but it sounds awfully familiar. And this is to show us that Isaac is now the bearer of God's promise. So that's why in verse 24 of chapter 26, God says to Isaac, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I'm with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Now, why do we need to know that Isaac has inherited this divine blessing? Well, because the Jacob and Esau soap opera is about to come back on. And the big question is this, who is going to inherit the divine blessing from Isaac? Will it be Jacob, the one with the birthright? Or will Esau try and swoop in at the last minute and claim it for himself? Well, let's find out. Look at verse 34 of chapter 26. When Esau was 40 years old, Rather than marry one woman within the faith, he then marries two women outside the faith. So not only has he despised his birthright, but now he's marrying multiple pagans. So Esau's being painted as someone who cares nothing for God's promises. Okay, so bear that in mind. And what follows in chapter 27 is one of the most dramatic and tragic stories in the Bible. There's there's intrigue, deceit, jealousy, suspense, anger, hatred. I mean, it's, this story has it, all, has it all. The word blessing occurs over 20 times in this chapter. In other words, this is a story about who will receive the blessing. Will it be the older, the older Esau or the younger Jacob? Now, by this time, Isaac, he is old, He's blind, he's apparently losing his marbles, and he doesn't think he has long left to live. And he wants to pass on the divine blessing. And so in verse one, he calls in his favorite son, Esau. Then in verses three to four, he asks Esau to go out, hunt some game, bring it back, prepare some delicious food, uh, the kind of food that Isaac loves, so that after filling his belly, Isaac can bless Esau. Now, in those days, when a father passed on his blessing, it was usually a very public event. I mean, the whole family was invited. Sometimes even the whole community was invited. Yet Isaac is doing this secretly. Did you see that? And that's because he knows that Jacob is the chosen son. However, he's trying to thwart divine election. It doesn't matter that Jacob has the birthright. It doesn't matter that Esau's marrying outside the faith. Isaac is blinded by his favoritism and his appetite. The drama intensifies in verse five there as Rebecca is, is eavesdropping at the door. She, she probably suspected something like this was gonna happen. And so she springs into action. In verse eight, she conjures up a plan to make her favorite son get the blessing. So she tells Jacob to go and to bring two goats from the flock. 
she'll whip up some delicious food. Jacob can bring it to Isaac. Isaac, who's, remember, he's blind. He'll just eat the food, and then Jacob will receive the blessing. That's her plan. But there's a slight hitch in that plan. Look at verse 11. Jacob is like, but mum, Esau, he's really really hairy I mean he's gross and and me I'm like smooth as a baby like if dad touches me and finds out I mean he's gonna think I'm mocking him he's gonna give me a curse and not a blessing like I don't know about this you know now notice that Jacob's reservations here they're not about the ethics of the plan you know I mean he's not like mom this sounds a little bit deceitful doesn't it Instead, he's like, Mom, what if I get caught? This is not going to go well for me. But Rebecca, you know, she's a smart cookie. She's thought this through. So after Jacob brings her the goats in verse 14, and she preps the meal, verse 15, she takes some of Esau's clothes, and she puts them on Jacob. She then takes the skins from the goats and puts them on Jacob's hands and his neck. (laughs) It's... It's kind of a hilarious scene when you think about it. I mean, Jacob must have looked absolutely ridiculous, like a hairy animal baby or something. But Rebecca, she then gives Jacob the food in verse 17, and then he takes it into Isaac. Now to us, this obsession with getting the blessing might, might seem silly, but we need to remember that this is not any old blessing This is about more than passing along the family silver. This isn't about who gets granddad's vinyl records or or, or granny's recipe books. You know, this is God's blessing. Eternal promises are wrapped up in this blessing. This is a blessing that includes God's people, God's place, and God's presence. The stakes couldn't be higher. So the desire for this blessing is right and good, even if the method for obtaining it is wrong and evil. From verse 18 onwards, the drama really escalates. It's, it's kind of like one of those, those movie scenes where, you know, you keep thinking the bad guy's going to come home at any second. You know, so you're, you're just on the edge of your seat waiting. Like, is Esau going to come home before Jacob gets the blessing? I mean, what if he does? Like, what if he sees Isaac with his hand on Jacob? I mean, Jacob looks like some sort of weird goat and, and, and Esau's in hunting mode. I mean, this is not going to end well if Esau comes home. And so this question just like hangs in the air throughout the next scene. Is Esau going to burst through the door? Or will, you know, or will Isaac figure out that he's being tricked. So verse 19, Jacob goes into Isaac and he identifies himself as Esau. But Isaac is is instantly suspicious. That was a quick hunting trip. But Jacob has an answer. He says, the Lord your God granted me success. He adds blasphemy to his deceit, but Isaac's still not convinced. Verse 21, he asks Jacob to come a little closer. His eyes might not work, but his hands certainly do. He wants to feel and see whether this is in fact Esau. 
the tension is thick. You, you can feel Jacob's pulse pounding as he approaches Isaac. Verse 22, he approaches Isaac. But Isaac's confused. The voice is Jacob's voice, he says. But the hands are the hands of Esau. And so Isaac just flat out asks in verse 24, are you, are you really my son Esau? To which Jacob replies, I am. So despite his doubts, Isaac then eats the food. Jacob then gives him a Judas-like kiss of betrayal. And then in verse 27, after taking a, a good whiff of Esau's garments, Isaac gives the blessing. It's a blessing of material prosperity and political power, verse 27, 28, and 29. But it's even more than that. Look at the end of verse 29. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. If you've been with us for our Genesis series, you'll know that that's an echo of God's promise to Abraham. The final scene brings the drama to a climax. So look at verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone from his presence, Esau, his brother, came in from hunting. I mean, cue dramatic music. He, he prepares the food. He brings it to Isaac. He asks for the blessing. And Isaac says, who are you? I'm your firstborn son, Esau. Verse 33, Isaac trembled violently. <laughs> it's such a great story, isn't it? Who have I just been speaking to then? I, who was it that just fed me the food? Who have I just given my blessing to? Isaac figures out that Jacob has deceived him. And then in verse 36, Esau says, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he's cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright. And behold, now he's taken away my blessing. And Esau is just distraught. I mean, he cries out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. He screams in horror. He pleads with Isaac in verse 34, bless me. Even me also, O oh my father. Then in verse 36, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Then finally in verse 38, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh my father. I mean, he's just so desperate. He, I mean, you, can, you, can, you can't help but feel his heartbreak. But it's too late. The blessing is already been spoken. Jacob not only has the birthright, but now he has the blessing that comes with it. And Isaac can't take it back. All he has for Esau is a kind of anti-blessing in verses 39 to 40. So that's our passage. It's entertaining. It's bizarre. Confusing. What are we meant to take from it? I mean, how does a story like this have any relevance to our lives today? 
Well, let me suggest two things. I think, first of all, from a passage like this, we're meant to, to take a warning from the life of Esau. A warning from the life of Esau. Esau despised his birthright. He also married two Hittite women. He was ruled by his stomach and his sexual desires. And he thought that in spite of treating God's promises so lightly, that he could still swoop in at the end and get the blessing. But no matter how hard he cried, it was too late. And the author of Hebrews actually picks up on this. And he says that Esau is a warning to us. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 to 17 says this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it, so he sought the blessing with tears. Esau is an example of someone who was part of the covenant community, yet he failed to obtain the grace of God. He exchanged God's eternal promises for temporary pleasures. Esau was a man ruled by his appetite, whether it was an appetite for food or sex, and he never repented. Yes, he shed tears, but they weren't tears of conviction. He regretted the consequences, but he never regretted his sin. And the author of Hebrews tells us that Esau is a warning to us. You see, you and I are tempted to exchange God's promises for temporary pleasures, aren't we? After all, God's promises require faith and waiting, but we want something that we can see and, and taste and touch and feel, and we want it now. Think of all the temporary pleasures in this life. Money, possessions, drugs, alcohol, the approval of others, sex. I mean, we could go on, but, but which of those fleeting pleasures are most likely to cause you to stumble? What temporary thrill do you have an appetite for? So if you, like Esau, fail to obtain the grace of God, what sin do you think would be the likely culprit? I think it's interesting how the author of Hebrews highlights sexual immorality. It's easy to overlook that in Esau's life. It's very subtle, but it's there, and the, the author of Hebrews confirms it. And the longer I've been in pastoral ministry, you know, I can see why he does. So, you know, so that cute boy at school or that attractive woman at the office or those tempting websites, or that inappropriate relationship, or those secret fantasies, whatever it is for you. I mean, that temporary sexual pleasure is so tempting, isn't it? However, let Esau be a warning to you. His sin hardened his heart, and he never repented. Don't assume that you can enjoy your sin and just flick the switch of repentance when you are ready, when you're ready. Sin 
hardens our hearts. I mean, how many of us have seen people fall away from God because of sexual sin? I mean, how many, think, think of Rabbi Zacharias, think of the people, even the, the famous Christians that have, have fallen in this area. Think of the people you know. Brothers and sisters, those who are old and those who are young, those who are married and those who are single, don't exchange God's eternal promises for the fleeting, temporary pleasures of sexual sin. Let Esau be a warning to us all. Secondly, we should see an encouragement from the life of Jacob. An encouragement from the life of Jacob. <clears throat> you know, Genesis 27 leaves us with a bad taste in our mouth, doesn't it? Jacob, deceiving Jacob, he gets the blessing. It just doesn't seem right. I mean, fair enough, Esau doesn't deserve it. But neither does Jacob. I mean, he gets the blessing by deception. And I think the author wants to leave us with this bad taste in our mouth. Why? Because there's a big point he wants to communicate. It's a point that's repeated time and time again in the Bible, and it's this. No one deserves God's blessing. No one. We're meant to read Genesis 27 and think, none of these people deserve God's blessing. They're a bunch of scoundrels and swindlers. Why is God bothering with these people? Yet God is gracious. He chooses the most undeserving, despicable, messed up people, and he says, that's who I'm going to work in and through for my glory. He even uses their sin to bring about his plans. And this isn't just a one-off event, is it? God has a habit of using the sinful deceit of humanity to further his purposes. I mean, isn't this most clearly seen in the cross of Jesus Christ? As wicked men crucified the Son of God, at the very same time, God was using their sin to bring about salvation. God's sovereign grace triumphs over human sin. Jacob is a prime example of that. Now listen, if God was gracious to Jacob, don't you think he can be gracious to you too? No matter what kind of week you've had, or year, or life, God is gracious. And he loves to display his grace in the very people who least deserve it. But how can we be sure? Here's how. You see, unlike Isaac, God isn't blind. He sees everything. He knows everything. He cannot be deceived and he will not be mocked. Everything we've ever thought or said or done, God sees it. And like Jacob, we are in desperate need of our father's blessing but we don't have a right to it and we definitely don't deserve it. But the gospel tells us that an exchange has taken place. Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, has clothed himself in our smelly, filthy rags of sin. And instead of receiving the blessing of his father, he received a curse. 
He was nailed to a wooden cross and he endured the wrath of God that we deserved. But that's not all because Jesus has clothed us in the sweet smelling garments of his righteousness so that when we come into the presence of our all-seeing heavenly father, we don't have to worry about being found out like Jacob because God smells the sweet aroma, not of our righteousness, but the righteousness of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the blessings of God's promises become ours in Christ Jesus. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your electing love, that it is personal, that it is humbling, and that it reassures us. Lord, would you help us to learn from the warning of Esau that we wouldn't exchange your eternal promises for fleeting temporary pleasures. We thank you for the encouragement from the life of Jacob that you choose to have grace, show grace on the worst of people, on the chief of sinners. We thank you that the Lord Jesus came and he died and rose again so that by faith we might be clothed in his righteousness and come into the presence of our all-seeing Father and receive the blessing that is rightfully his. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.